What's cracking lovely people? Welcome to the Big Feed Up HQ podcast, the podcast about nutrition, movement, outdoor experiences. I'm your host as always, Matt Gardner, and I'm a registered nutritionist. This podcast is powered by 33 Fuel, who produce natural and powerful sports nutrition products. Right, let's get into it, lovely people. If you're a new listener, then get on over to some of my other episodes. I've recorded over 100 and just look at the title, see what resonates with you and I hope you get something valuable out of it. Today, I've got a chap called Michael Gleason on the show and I'm really excited to bring you a wide ranging conversation with him. Michael is the Emeritus Professor of Exercise Biochemistry at Loughborough University. He retired in 2016 after 40 years of research and teaching mostly related to diet, metabolism, health and performance of athletes. He had a particular interest in the effects of diet and exercise on the function of the immune system and is a past president of the International Society of Exercise and Immunology. He has co-founded uh, several books, sorry, co-authored several books on, on exercise biochemistry, sports nutrition and exercise immunology and published over 200 research papers in scientific and medical journals. He's still an active science writer, and I'm looking forward to getting into that with him. And in the past years, he has contributed to an international experts consensus review sponsored by the IOC, Training Load and Illness Risk, the ISEI of Immunonutrition and UEFA Nutrition in Elite Football, as well as completing the third edition of his highly popular book, Sports Nutrition, co-authored with Professor Asker Yukendrup. Also, Michael has just released a book called Eat, Move, Sleep, Repeat, and I'm going to get into that and so many other things in this show. So I'll shut up and let's crack on and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you doing and where are you during this lockdown period? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come on and talk to you, Matt. It's a real pleasure. Uh, like everybody else, I'm sat at home at the moment. The weather's nice, we're out in the garden. Uh, me and the wife go out for an early morning walk. We try and get about eight miles in uh, in the first couple of hours uh, after we've got up and then uh, come back and then doing stuff at home, some gardening, some a bit on the cyclergometer if the weather's not too good. I've got that set up in the, uh, in the conservatory. We've got a few weights as well eating well, getting down to the shops. We're lucky to live in a village near uh, a town where there's a market. It's a market town so in, in Leicestershire. So we can get up there and go on to the uh, fruit and veg market and get other things like fish and meat and stuff. And, you know, trying to avoid going to the supermarket in general just once a month for that, probably. Oh, that's really good to hear. And I'm glad you're keeping well. And I think um, to start off, I uh, I basically went through obviously quite a lot of background on yourself in the intro so it'd be great to know how you got into teaching uh, lecturing researching 40 years ago um so that's uh, you know you've got a considerable considerable amount of time under your belt um doing all those things so yeah it'd be great to hear how you started yeah well i did my first degree at university of birmingham and it was actually a first degree in in biochemistry one of the specialisms there was about muscle metabolism and muscle structure and uh, 
process of contraction and what fuels are being used to supply the muscles and that, that caught my interest. I would, I would always been interested in exercise, just from a, a general interest in sport, not been any, any good at any particular sport myself, I must say. Uh, but I've always enjoyed participating in sport and watching elite sport, particularly Premier League football nowadays. Um, and uh, that sort of sparked the interest in exercise, I think. Um, I thought I'd like to do research. That sounded very interesting to try and find out new things, explore, answer questions. Um, so that was the main driving force that took me into academia, which is you know, where most of sort of the uh, sort of the academic research. Uh, the fundamental research was, was, was being done in those days and probably still is. Um, and uh, to actually carry on that beyond doing like a PhD and maybe one or two postdoctoral appointments where you're funded by some grant, to actually get a proper job that's got some security, you need to get a lectureship. And I don't know, I don't know of any kind of research only lectureships, lectureships by its very title means you're going to be lecturing to students. So teaching, examinations, marking, etc. is all part of the, uh, the package. Yes, you get some time to do some research each week and, you know, your bread and butter job is actually there to educate young people. Um, so it's sort of a, by accident or actually essentially a requirement to carry on doing research, you've also got to learn to, to teach. Mm. And that's not always as easy as it sounds, because unlike sort of teacher training, where you go into primary and secondary school, and you've actually done a degree in that, you don't get that, you, at least you didn't in my day, when it, so you started university life as a lecturer, it was kind of in at the deep end. You know, you're usually given something that you actually know something about to talk about, at least to begin with. Uh, you're not just sort of reading it up the night before before you give it to the students. Uh, but it, I, found, I found it very hard to begin with. The first few ones were probably pretty crap lectures, I imagine. And I got some feedback from one of the more experienced academics saying, Michael, can I have a word with you? Uh, I'm afraid the students are revolting. Well, I thought it was just sort of generally talking about students being revolting in general, didn't realise that they were actually kind of objecting to the way I was lecturing. I was tending to read too much from notes, you know, perhaps not engaging, not having eye contact. And they, they, they helped me out a lot, the experienced guys, where, where I first started lecturing. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think I, I got it right eventually. It's, it's a bit of a sink or swim situation. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So now I'm reasonably accomplished after 40 years of practice. <laughs> well, I think that's really good to hear because, um, you know, what you're saying is, every, you know, everyone starts somewhere and, um, you know, most people, especially in sports and exercise science and nutrition, they have mentors. Um, so anyone kind of getting into uh, this field or are interested in obviously you and, and, and your path, it's good to hear that you had to start somewhere and you're quite nervous before lectures and things um, so you know that's I think that's a really important thing to say and um, yeah what what uh, kind of got you interested in diet and exercise on the immune system then after obviously um, studying starting to lecture um, like you said covering different topics and things and learning how to hone your craft 
Um, how did you end up dovetailing into more around sports and exercise and nutrition and the immune system? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I guess um, I think one thing for any some advice I'd give to any young aspiring academic at an early stage of their career is try and find a, a little niche you can work in and become specialist and try and become you know one of the top people in that area. In some cases, it might be a fairly narrow field. It's much more difficult, I think, to make a name for yourself if you're working, say, in something like diabetes research or cancer research, where there's loads and loads of people working in those areas. I was lucky enough at an early stage in my career to sit in on a lecture by Professor Eric Newsholm, who was a, uh, a lecturer in, in biochemistry at the University of Oxford. And uh, he was uh, a keen marathon runner himself, and he uh, recognised that he and his, uh, his friends and colleagues were tending to come down with more colds and respiratory infections, particularly during the winter months, than they, what seemed to be the average. And uh, he was the first, one of the first people to actually recognise, I think, that doing very hard, prolonged exercise, like training for and participating in marathon races, can have a depressive effect on immune function. And one thing he might he thought might be causing that was uh, reduced availability of the amino acid glutamine, which is an essential fuel for cells of the immune system. And they also need it to produce nucleic acids to allow them to proliferate and divide. And his theory was that plasma glutamine availability decreases during exercise, which clearly it does, and that this might be enough to suppress or inhibit the uh, proliferation of lymphocytes in, in particular and might account for some of this sort of exercise-induced increase in susceptibility to common infections. As it turned out, that, that really didn't pan out and uh, glutamine availability doesn't really seem to be an important factor in why more athletes get ill. Um, there are other factors involved which have now been recognised. But at the time, it was quite groundbreaking research. And he was a very inspiring speaker and a very, very intelligent man. And uh, yeah, it was him who thought, well, what, what else do we know about that? What, what else to do with immune function? Changes with exercise. Can we use exercise as a model of other forms of stress, like psychological stress? Is it a sort of a universal phenomenon? If you get too much stress in your life, you get immune system depression. And then the obvious question then is, well, what, is there anything you can do about it? What about nutrition? Can you correct some of this by appropriate nutrition before, during, or after exercise? Can supplements, nutritional supplements help with that? So that's what got me off on, on, on started on that, uh, that line of work and carried it on ever since, really. So what you're saying is obviously back then the kind of immunonutrition and, and research and thoughts behind that area, it was uh, it was a small area of research or like you said, people were oh, yes, putting... This, this was a new, new, really a new beginning. Yeah. I think we've known since the early 1900s that, yeah, the numbers of white blood cells in your circulation increases during exercise. And then people couldn't get their heads around this conundrum, this paradox your number of white blood cells goes up during exercise. So why do you get, why are you more susceptible to infection? 
of course it's what the exercise is doing to the function of those cells not simply their numbers mm. and where have those cells come from well most of them just washed into the circulation from being previously stuck to the blood cell walls and then you get ones new ones coming in the bone marrow but not necessarily ready and primed ready to react to uh, bacteria and viruses that you might get exposed to mm. It would be really good to come back to maybe a little bit later around exercise intensity and duration and like you said how it changes things. Um, but obviously o- over your over your career, your forty year career, um, as as a science writer, um, when you were researching more, lecturing, obviously getting to know the people that were sitting in front of you, the the young kind of budding practitioners, taking learnings from other colleagues and and researchers. What, what has it been like uh, writing, obviously, in research and now, obviously, um, you're out the other side and, and you're retired and, and you're writing your own books? What's that process been like as a, as a writer? Yeah, um, well, I think uh, to move forward in science, to actually advance your career, to move from sort of lecturer to senior lecturer to reader to professor or whatever, um, you, you do need to publish because most promotion interviews at universities or when you go for a new job at a different institution, the first thing questions people will be looking at was, well, how many publications has this guy got? Have they made a real impact in the area in which he's working? Is, is he somebody who's going to become an expert in this area? Um, and you learn a lot from writing, not just from you doing the writing, but also from all the reading that you have to do beforehand to write your own paper, to get all the background right and get it right in context. And of course, when you send these papers off to journals to be published, the editors don't just accept them and stick it in the journal, they they send it out for peer review. So it usually goes out to two or three other people who are experts in that area. They will read through the paper, they'll criticise things you've written if it's wrong or if they think it could be expressed in a better way. They'll suggest improvements and you learn from that. Getting that feedback on your work, it's a bit like as a student when you get feedback on your coursework from the lecturers just mark your, your essay on something. You know, hopefully you learn from that and you don't make the same mistakes again and you, you, you get better at it the longer you keep going. I'd say I think I'm a much better writer now than I was even 10 years ago, never mind 20 or 30 years ago, and obviously things have improved over time. And I've seen that in my own colleagues, people who were coming along at the same time as me, people like Professor Paul Greenhaff, um, for example, who was doing his PhD at the time I was a postdoctoral researcher in Aberdeen. When he first started out, he handed in a paper to his supervisor, Ron Morn, and Ron showed it to me as well. It did go back to him with more red ink on it than there was black type. (laughs) He got a lot of feedback at an early stage of his career from people who knew what they were doing and were good at writing like Ron Morn. And uh, he's learned from that now. And of course, he's 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 an excellent writer now. Mm. But these things take time. You're not born with that ability. Well, very few people are, uh, you, but you you know you can learn from the, uh, the help that uh, colleagues, more experienced people can give you, and from the critique and feedback you get, both on what you write, 
and also standing up at conferences and doing talks about your research and then uh, then you have to actually you know sort of stand on your feet think on your feet and answer those questions based on the uh, you know the knowledge you've gained over the over the years and that, that becomes easier the, the more you do it as well mm. so would you say throughout your career there's there's been a bit of a combination in terms of the driving force so you obviously wanting to to progress um, in, in, in your craft as a, as a researcher and, and a scientific writer, but then also um, did you feel the pressure of obviously colleagues and, and other people in the field as you were coming up looking at what you're doing? Like you said, if you can find that niche area of research and you can become a, an expert and, and well-respected, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So, um, you know, it's... It's interesting. How how did you find the balance, you know, in your in your own self with your own kind of um, mindset as as you were kind of progressing through your career and starting to come into its, you know, your peak. Yeah, well, I think you have, you have you have to take the criticism on board and, like I say, learn learn from it. I know some people take on board criticism better than others. Some people just don't like being criticised at all and don't take it very well. They take it as an insult to their intelligence. But if you don't think of it that way, if you think of it as somebody's actually trying to help you become a better person, a better writer, a better speaker, you know, um, all of these things, just take them on board and learn from what people are saying so that you can improve and try and get better each time you do it. That's awesome. And it's good to hear a bit of background around what goes into putting, you know, research and, and submitting papers and things like that in, because um, yeah, I know a lot of people listening to the show won't know about that process. So, yeah, I really appreciate you um, going into that in, in depth, Michael. So it'd be really good now to um, yeah start getting under the hood around your new book. And um, for anyone listening, obviously, Everything you need in terms of the links to the book will be in the show notes. So it's eat, move, sleep, repeat. Um, yeah, it'd be really good to to hear a bit about it, Michael, and um, you know, let the listeners know who uh, this book is for. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the main reason I wrote this book was I thought I could put something back into the benefit of the general public for their for their health. Um, I think we learnt a lot from what's been done in sport and exercise science over the years that can actually translate back into public health about the benefits of exercise and what it can, what improvements it can do to the body and how it can help to prevent the development of chronic diseases. And I started reading around a few of the books from the, uh, the usual suspects, your celebrity television doctors, a few personal trainers, even a few chefs, I just picked up a few off the shelves, had to read through those while I was in a bookshop. I thought in many cases I could probably read that book in an hour or two. And when I did actually buy a few of them as well and actually start reading them in detail, I thought, well, I'm not sure where some of this information has come from. It doesn't sound right to me. And when I looked it up, it was it was actually wrong. Uh, and I think that's the difference between sort of the book I would write as a scientist and the book that somebody is basing it really on what you might call just opinion or based on their own personal experiences or their experiences with clients that they've worked with. Mm. You know, they haven't actually gone back to the original literature to find out whether what they're actually saying is, 
is absolutely correct and in, in many cases I found it to be uh, like I say frankly wrong and that I don't think yeah that, that shouldn't be happening but people are so much into the cult of celebrity nowadays it seems they can say almost anything and get away with it but I, I tried to do something very different I wrote it as I would an academic book but tried to put it into simpler language so that the you know the average reasonably intelligent member of the general public could easily understand what it was saying and try to actually explain the science. That's another thing you don't get in these books. Mm. You'll get a few pages about the background science. It's usually a bit woolly and a bit superficial. And uh, the rest of the book will be usually a bunch of recipes or pictures of somebody doing some exercise who's already fit, young and athletic. And, uh, you know, they might be saying to a, a 50, 60-year-old guy like me, you know, this, this is what you should be doing. You think, yeah, come on, you're kidding. You know, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. that doing that will make me sick. You know, high-intensity interval training is one, one example that, that, you know, gets promoted a heck of a lot nowadays. And even for fat burning, which I think is totally wrong. So, um, you know, I do have some issues with those books written by these essentially non-science people. Mm. If you base it on the evidence, then you're much more likely to get the message right. And the, you know, the, the book will then become a reliable resource that people can rely on. And, uh, yeah, that, that's... That's one of my main beefs with the with the current uh, state of books we've got about healthy lifestyle. To do. A lot of it's to do with dieting and losing weight, of course. Some also include stuff on exercise as well for for health. But again, all for me, a little bit too superficial. It doesn't actually explain the science behind it. Mm. And I think if people actually understand the reasons behind the guidelines they're more likely to stick to those recommendations and get the benefit from them than just trying to take somebody's word from it, for it. You know, it's too much of this, um, you know, trust me, I'm a doctor sort of approach rather than saying, this is what these guidelines are based on. This is the evidence behind it. This is why we're saying do this and don't do this. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more, and it sounds like your fad detector is is really high, which I think is is it's important for someone like yourself to come in and and like you said, you wanted to to offer, you know, your your information, your vast amount of experience, and um, I've almost I've almost finished the book, and the good thing is about it, um, you can go into certain chapters. So like you said, if you want to know the how, uh, dig into basics around nutrition and things like that, you can. Um, there's obviously some aspects of why in there, psychological side. Um, you've got some interesting information around appetite regulation and things like that. And then obviously from the exercise side, I'm so glad you brought up the uh, the low and slow, uh, moderate intensity compared to high intensity interval training, and um, how someone can kind of balance their their movement and their exercise routine to, like you said, either support uh, fat loss, weight loss, or, or just um, to get healthier. So I think if you're listening to this, lovely people, and you do buy the book and you see that it is, you know, it's really meaty, the good thing is you can pick chapters 
and and you can kind of use what you need come and go um and 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 i really like that side of things and i think um that's an important point to get across michael because um like you said you you have gone into a lot of detail um and you're not expecting people to just go through it in in an hour or two like you said with some of the other books you can just grab at supermarkets um written by celebrities yeah, yeah, I'm sure it didn't take you. I'm sure it took you probably a few days to get through it, didn't it, Matt? Yeah, uh, I'm I, still going. <laughs> when I was when I was reading back through it myself, you know, I thought, yeah, yeah it's going to take a while to, to read through this. It's not going to be over in a couple of hours, like you like you say. So and uh, and what, once people have had a read through it, like you say, they can always go back to it and dip into something that. Uh, was of interest or they, they may have forgotten about and they want to find out a little bit more about, you know, how to improve the quality of their sleep if they run into those sort of problems somewhere down the line. Or if they want to lose, you know, if they find they actually decide I actually need to lose some weight, well, what's the best way to go about it? Mm, definitely. And, um, you know, look, I've, I've listened to a few interviews and podcasts and things by yourself around nutrition and uh, supporting the immune system and, and I'm keen to ask a few questions near to the end of the uh, the podcast uh, around that but I think it would be good because you brought up a bit around training intensity um, it'll be interesting to hear a bit more about that from you and, and, and a little bit of an extract from the book uh, because it's something that I haven't brought up on the show before but it's something I speak to a lot of people about in my uh, practice you know away from the podcast so it'd be really interesting to hear about um how you favor if that's the right term you know that low to moderate intensity exercise and, and why it's useful um yeah i mean it's not that i'm dead against hit altogether high intensity interval training is a really good time efficient means of getting fitness improvements that will improve your health for those that can do it uh, for those that are willing to do it and particularly for the people who have limited amounts of time. So I'm talking about sort of, you know, people like yourself, working people, you know, aged between, say, 20 and 50. You know, if you can only fit in 15, 20 minutes of exercise into your day because you've got a busy working day, and, you know, and you have to spend some time with your partner in the, in the evening, you can't just go off to the gym or something like that. You know, HIT is, is, is very good for the vet. Uh, but you have got more time on your hands, um, particularly people like me. I mean, I, I retired when I was 60, so I could take advantage of some of my, uh, you know, years while I'm still very well and reasonably fit uh, to enjoy those. Um, yeah, no, my, my preferred mode of walking is, 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 or exercise is essentially brisk walking because you can go out, you can do that. It's very, very good for for fat burning, it's not going to make you fatigued or tired for the rest of the day. It won't have a major impact on your appetite. You'll burn plenty of calories. People burn about 100 calories per mile that they walk, so it's very good for that. We normally do, uh, in normal times, we do five to 10 miles of walking a day and do it at a fairly brisk pace, so you are getting some uh, cardiovascular exercise from that it's putting up your heart rate and your breathing rate but you're still able to engage in conversation and enjoy the scenery if you're lucky enough to live in a, a rural area like like i do um, 
And when it comes to fat burning, if we just hop onto that little topic for a moment, um, I seriously object to people writing in their healthy lifestyle books that five, 10, or even 15 minutes of high intensity interval training is good for fat loss. So if you actually do the sums, 15 minutes of high intensity interval training usually means doing about only about three or four minutes of actual high intensity exercise and the rest is recovery time within that because you tend to do maybe six bouts, 30 seconds each, each followed by you know one to two minutes of rest before you do the next one. Um, if you actually measure the actual amount of energy expended doing that, in a 15-minute session, it amounts to about 150 calories. Well, like I say, you could do that with just about a mile and a half of walking. Uh, you know, if you're prepared to go out for uh, an hour's walking, you'll probably get at least probably two and a half to three miles done. You know, you're going to, you're going to burn around about 300 calories doing that. Um, so, you know, they don't compare in terms of uh, calorie burn for fat loss. Mm. And uh, for those who know something about the impact that exercise intensity as well as duration has on your muscle metabolism, we'd know that if you're doing high intensity exercise, of course, you're actually burning mostly muscle glycogen and you're using some phosphocreatin uh, as well. You're not really burning fat, in fact, fat oxidation. High intensity exercise is, is pretty minimal. Whereas if you're doing low intensity or moderate intensity exercise, the majority of your energy is actually going to be coming from burning fat. And that's you know, the two things that don't get mentioned in these other books some knowledge of what's happening in the muscle as to which fuels are being preferentially used during the exercise you've selected, and the amounts of calories that are actually being burned. And another thing I find in these books, there's very little in the way of facts and figures. There's lots of opinion and there's lots of anecdotes and maybe comments from clients and things like that. But again, it's all based on opinion. It's not based on a knowledge of the actual important facts. And that's what they should, it should be based on. And taking that a little bit further, Michael, and... Um touching on the practical side it would be interesting i think for the listeners to understand a little bit about the fat max and um, i know you go into it in the book and obviously we're encouraging people to to really dig into to the chapter in there um but can you just go into how someone can uh, try to do their own training and work out um, a little bit about the intensity um that that they could exercise in for their bodies um, and themselves to be able to obviously um, utilise uh, some of the things you were talking about there in terms of um, fuel partitioning and things. Yeah, well, fat max is a concept um, that uh, Asker Yukendrup and myself came up came up with a guess about nearly twenty years ago now. Uh, that um, when you do exercise. Um, the rate at which you burn fat or you, you oxidize it um, in the mitochondria, in the cells in your, in, in your muscles mostly during the exercise, um, the rate at which you do that changes according to the intensity at which you're doing the exercise. As I said, at, at 
uh, low intensity exercise like walking, you're mostly burning fat, but because the actual intensity is not that high, you're only burning a certain amount of fat. Now, if you increase the intensity, although the proportion of the fuel that's being used is exercise is going down as you're using more and more carbohydrate, there's actually a peak point you reach, which is usually at a moderate exercise intensity, somewhere between 50 and 70% of a person's aerobic capacity or their maximal oxygen uptake. And that's where you actually get peak or maximal fat burning. So that intensity is what we call the fat max intensity. If you exercise even harder at a higher intensity, then because the utilization of fat starts to drop off, so much as you go much higher than 70% of maximal oxygen uptake, the, uh, you know, the actual rate of fat oxidation starts to fall. So it's sort of an inverted U-shaped curve and it's highest at moderate exercise intensity. So if anybody wants to actually use exercise to help them burn fat, perhaps in addition to cutting down their energy intake through dieting, then uh, moderate exercise intensity is your most efficient and effective means of, of doing that. For most people, if you're relatively unfit to begin with, your uh, fat max intensity will be about 50% of your aerobic capacity. And for most unfit people, that will be somewhere around between 130 and 150 beats per minute if you're wearing a heart rate monitor that's the best way to actually gauge it uh, quite easily and non-invasively is to wear a heart rate monitor uh, you can work out your maximum heart rate um, from simply from your, your age you can estimate it from that it'll be about 220 minus your age and uh, if you know what your resting heart rate is as well the difference between that the resting heart rate and your maximum Age predicted heart rate is what you call your heart rate reserve. If you aim to exercise at about 50% of that, that's the heart rate you should be aiming for. Mm. Uh, we say do it that way because the older you get, obviously because it's age related, your maximal heart rate comes down, whereas your resting heart rate tends to stay round about the same for most people, be about 70 beats per minute. But uh, to, to allow for the effect of age, you can work out your heart rate reserve and what 50% of that is. And that's the heart rate you should be aiming for to get maximum fat burning. Mm. That's such a useful tool. And I think, um, like you said at the start of this conversation around exercise, brisk walking, if you have the time, um, and especially at the moment, you know, in the current climate, people are allowed to go out and, um, you know, be active for an hour or so. Um, it's such a useful tool and um, am I correct in saying it's you know it's less of a burden on the immune system Michael so um, it's trying to balance that uh, kind of environment where if you have time and you want to do a lot of exercise it's just uh, making sure that the intensity of the exercise works for you so balancing some of the low and slow the brisk walking yeah. and then obviously if you can if you're able some of the high intensity some of the resistance training the good thing is you've got a, a section on all these different modalities of training haven't you and how someone can kind of patchwork it into their into their week 
Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, you, yeah. If you, if you haven't got the time to like do three or even four hours of exercise a day, which some people have, <laughs> then you don't want to be doing all sort of moderate and high intensity work then, because then you start to get the opposite effect of exercise on immunity, which is what we were talking about earlier on with the the marathon runners and the like, sort of maybe overdoing the training and doing these very prolonged. Uh, runs in competition as well and those are the things that actually suppress immunity to some degree or depress immune cell functions to some degree and you certainly don't you certainly want to avoid that whereas if you're doing exercise at the lower end of intensities like brisk walking or just jogging or I see many cyclists on the road at the moment you know just cycling along along you're only doing sort of moderate exercise intensity then for most of the time and you know that that's actually good for your immune function it gets more cells into the circulation the cells that come in when you're doing that sort of exercise are ones that are actually primed and ready to fight infection and uh, you know, you're getting that what I call it increased immunosurveillance because the more cells you've got circulating around in your circulation, the more likely they are to pick up anything that comes in through your lungs and your gut or your mucosal membranes, which is where where most infections come through. You know, we're, we're told not to touch our fingers to our mouths, to our nose, to our eyes anymore, you know, so uh, uh, to avoid that kind of thing, touching those mucosal membranes is one way of getting germs that are on your fingertips directly into your body very easily. So, but if you've got doing regular exercise, you've got this increased immunosurveillance and uh, that, that that's a protective thing that uh, will help to reduce your risk of picking up infections. Mm. And I think just to kind of summarise that that bit and that section of your book, Michael, I, I really wanted to bring up the, the Fat Max and that tool and, and the section on your book around intensity, duration of exercise. Um, before the listeners obviously go, go away and, and, and have a look at it, is there another se- section that you do quite like to highlight that, uh, you know, might be important for some of the listeners to hear about now? Obviously, I know you you've written the entire thing and, and, and you really want everyone and, 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 and everyone to kind of um, read, read it all. But is there another section that, that you think uh, may be quite useful for people to hear about now? Oh, yeah, I think uh, maybe the bit about sort of weight loss diets and that sort of side of things, because that's obviously becoming, I mean, it's always topical, that thing. And we're finding now, of course, with this COVID-19 infection, the people who are most at risk of getting serious health problems and even dying from the infection are those who are either older people who've sort of developed immunosenescence or they're the, uh, the people who are overweight and obese. And it's this inflammation of their fat tissue that's probably getting them in a, a chronic low-grade inflammation state, which is like a pro-inflammatory state. So when they get infected and they activate their immune system to try and get rid of this infection, they're actually getting an overreaction. And that's bringing about significant tissue damage in the lung. Because perhaps one thing people perhaps don't appreciate is that your immune system gets rid of viruses by killing your own cells. The cells in which the 
that become infected with the virus. The virus is then using those cells to uh, reproduce itself using your own molecular machinery like the ribosomes uh, that are in there for protein synthesis. Uh, they can't do it on their own. They, they rely on our cells to do it. And they get into our cells and then they start to multiply and multiply and multiply until the cell bursts and then those viruses get released you know, to infect other cells uh, in that tissue and surrounding tissues. Now, the immune system is trying to do is trying to stop that happening, stop the virus reproducing. And the only way you can do it is by killing your cells. But if you get overreactive, you start to kill too many cells too early that have become infected, and you get massive tissue damage, you get inflammation, you get fluid accumulation in the lung. That's what makes the breathing difficult, and that's what's actually killing people with COVID-19. And part of that is being promoted by having this high level of fat-driven inflammation in the body. And exercise can directly oppose that. I've gone off tangent there because we said we talk about fat loss diets, but I'm just trying to give you the background as to why people should be seriously thinking about losing mm. weight if they're not already doing so. Uh, I think it's helpful though because um, again, you know, you've in 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 that section of the book, you you comment on um, certain dietary interventions and and you know popular diets, intermittent fasting, yeah. paleo zone, and again, like you said, it isn't just a a snapshot you go in you look at the science you talk about the practical side of it you obviously define the ins and outs of of the diet so i think again that's a really useful um section of the book because it just plays as a bit of a roadmap for people because you know it goes without saying that you have to you have to do something that's going to work for you long term that's going to be practical um and as you said there it makes sense from a from a health, from a from an anti-inflammatory point of view, if if you're trying to lose a bit of weight, if you've got an excess, you know, bit of weight, there's there's interventions out there. So the good thing is you're, you know, you're you're not saying this is the way. You're you're looking at all these different interventions. You're showing what the science says, and then obviously the reader can make up their own decision. Yeah, it's I think it's a very 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 confusing area for the public because every year there's one or two new diets come out. They don't usually stand the test of time, uh, but some of them have done. And some diets have been around now for long enough to know that they actually do work, and you know studies have been done on them to show that they are reasonably effective. But if you want one take-home message from me about dieting, is that essentially all diets work essentially the same way. They work by getting you to reduce your calorie intake, and it doesn't really matter how you achieve that. In fact, it's better to try and keep a balanced diet if you can. There's no real need to have diets very, very high in carbohydrate and virtually containing no fat. And conversely, you know, you don't need to have a high fat diet and have zero carbohydrate like you know, the keto diets uh, promote. Mm. There's no particular metabolic advantage to doing that. And so, for me, sensible dieting means maintaining the, the principles of a normal, healthy diet in there's a, a well-balanced, uh, diverse diet, largely plant-based, but not excluding any major food groups. Don't exclude meat, fish, dairy produce. Why? You don't need to. Just cut down a bit on the things that provide energy, the carbohydrate, 
and the fat and cut those down equally and come up with a very healthy type of diet. You'll end up something with something like a Mediterranean diet if you do that, which we know is healthy, or a Japanese diet, which is very healthy as well. And those are two examples that I give. But um, the other problem with dieting, just trying to stick to the same sort of diet, I think, week after week after week, is that people just get bored with it. They get bored with eating the same foods and they think they miss some of the things that they're being restricted in the diet. So what I'm promoting in this book, really, and in the other ones I've written, which we might mention towards the end, are really a a notion that uh, because all diets work essentially the same, but different diets restrict different things, why not just do a different diet every week? Stick to that diet for one week and then switch to another. And in the book, I identified something like eight different diets which are all proven to be effective so i've suggested try each of one of those uh, for just one week and then switch to another one mm. that way you, you won't get bored you won't get food cravings because you're not restricting the same things every week and it'll actually be much more healthy in the long run because you won't end up becoming deficient in anything you know there are over 40 essential nutrients in our diet if you try and restrict too many things, you're not going to get enough of something. And that itself will cause health problems. So to eat a, a healthy diet, change it every week and you won't get bored with it. You're much more likely to stick to that diet and you'll be much more likely, therefore, to achieve your, your weight loss goals. Mm. I think that's a really important message. And, and like you said there, any way you can reduce your dietary fatigue, your palate fatigue and try different things, but still try to you know maximize your nutrient intake that's you know that sounds like a very smart way forward and a practical way forward and um another good thing i think that you mentioned in the book and um there's a lot more about this uh out now It'd be interesting to, to hear your words on maybe at the start of your career michael if um people spoke about this but obviously binge eating eating disorders uh you link to support and help and things like that in your book as well so obviously that's the other side of things i know that's probably worth a complete uh, different interview and conversation in itself but um yeah you, you you present a lot of information i think that's what i want to get across you're obviously showing the science showing different diet interventions showing a bit around um, how you can try different diets and things but then also letting the reader understand if if they identify anything around you know foods they feel like they they can't put down or um disordered eating or things like that you've you've linked to help there so it's just that overall message there's a lot of detail in there um, it's science first and, and that's why I wanted to get you on the show really to obviously um, go go through some of the things so um, yeah before before we maybe get into some of the listener questions it'd be great to hear about what you've got coming up in the future I know you mentioned a few minutes before you've got some other um, books and things in the pipeline so what can we look look forward to um, from from you um, well, the, the next book I've got coming out, I mean, it was actually supposed to be out already, and I think it, because it was printed in America, it's probably actually out there now, but we're going to have to wait for them to be able to ship books across the Atlantic to get it into the UK and Europe, and that's a book about beating type 2 diabetes. Um, it's, it's not just about how to get yourself rid of diabetes, and again, it's through natural means, through diet 
and exercise and losing weight. Uh, it's also for anybody really who's, particularly who's recently been diagnosed with pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, because uh, it takes them through what they'll get when they go to the doctors and are first tested and found their blood sugar is high or something like that uh, in an annual blood test. It'll tell them what, what's being used to diagnose them as type 2 diabetic and then uh, what the causes of it are, what the risk factors are, what the serious health consequences are if they don't do something about it. And we can be talking about you know, not only earlier death, but higher risk of things like uh, cancers, limb amputations. You know, it, it's not a nice disease to have, and it gets progressively worse and worse over the years. And it's important people are aware of that. They, they might not really realise, many people when they go for that blood test, they don't actually realise they've got it. You know, uh, it comes as a bit of a shock to them. Uh, but if they don't do something about it, then they'll know because they're getting some of the serious health consequences only four or five years down the line. So it's, uh, yeah, how, how, the, uh, how the disease would be normally managed. That could include, you know, taking some drugs as well. Uh, initially, it's just advice about losing some weight, usually, and changing your diet and doing a bit, becoming a bit more active. And uh, then how people can actually get rid of it. How can they uh, get rid of this diagnosis and go back to being, you know, sort of normal health, shall we say. And what's very clear from the literature out there is if you lose enough weight, and for some people, it might only be about 5 to 10 kilograms of weight loss we're talking about here. You know, it's not a huge amount. It's something that can be managed within a sort of three to six month period. So if you're prepared to put in the effort to do that by changing your diet, not eating as much, exercising some more, you can actually get rid of your type 2 diabetes. So that's what that book's all about. And then uh, so that should be out anytime soon now. And then I've got another one coming out at, uh, just in time for Christmas, I hope, which is called The Pick and Mix Diet. And that's really um, taking a few steps further what we talked about earlier on in the podcast about this idea of a, a multi-diet program to get rid of excess body fat to lose weight. Um, and in that one, I've actually got 10 different diets that people can use. So literally, you can use a different diet every week for a 10-week period. And at the end of that 10 weeks, you should have lost around about seven kilos of body fat. Fantastic. Um, so that's that one. And I've also just got a few contributions to some upcoming reviews. Once actually been almost three years in the writing, would you believe? Uh, probably because it's got about 30 different authors uh, all contributing with different opinions. And that's about nutrition in elite football. And that's something that's being sponsored by UEFA. It's an initiative then from them up to some scientists persuading them it was about time we had a new uh, sort of a consensus review mm. article on uh, nutrition in elite football because the last one was now actually about 14 years ago. And uh, obviously, a lot of things have changed since then. The nature of the game itself has changed since then. It's become much more intense, much more high-intensity work 
is going on has become more technical as well and hence the nutritional demands have changed as well mm. and then we've seen the expansion of the women's football game over the last 10 years quite significantly so and also issues to do with uh, you know young up and coming you know you've got young kids now starting at 9 10 11 in the uh, professional club academies you know and we need some better information about how they should be fed and fueled uh, not only for their performance but also to make sure they stay healthy mm. oh fantastic mike thanks for that so um, the best place to, to follow you if the, if the listener wants to keep in touch with you over the rest of this year so they can um, you know grab the the new books and um, hear about the the review if, if it's going to be published and you know free access or if people can purchase it like where's the best place to keep in touch with you um, I think on my, my personal website which is simply called prof for health that's a, a number for a digital number for between prof and health uh, you can just google google that and you'll find it and uh, I put all the information about my new books and where you can buy them from whether it's a paperback or as an ebook I've got some videos I put uh, podcasts like like this one we're doing now put links to those on there so people can see previous videos and, and podcasts that I've done and a few probably about 20 or so different sort of blog type articles about various aspects of nutrition some related to health some related to sport fantastic fantastic look i've taken a huge amount of your time up mike and there's so much value hopefully no um, from from this from this episode i think um i did have a long list of questions but i think i'm just going to ask you one before before we go if we've got time um a few people actually asked this because um you know they keep in touch with you and um when i asked a few people about what what they'd want to know um from yourself after your you know 40 year career um the most popular question was what is the biggest and most meaningful finding you have been exposed to during your career um so yeah try trying to answer that in uh, in a couple of minutes i'm sure that'd be quite hard but if you've got anything that comes to mind that that would be great and then we can round off the show yeah, I'm not, well, I don't know, it would, would, it, would be perhaps the most important and significant thing, but I think the thing that pre- perhaps it has to be something that's actually kind of surprises you when that information first comes out. And to me, working in exercise immunology, the most surprising thing I think uh, I learned from a paper going, well, gosh, 20 well, 20 years ago, perhaps, was this idea that uh, exercising muscle actually produces cytokines. And cytokines are the chemical messengers that are white blood cells to use to communicate with each other and with the brain and other tissues. So they're a bit like hormones or neurotransmitters. They're ways of exchanging information about inhibiting certain pathways and stimulating others or certain other actions Uh, and to find that uh, actually exercising contracting muscle fibers were actively producing uh, a cytokine which was later identified as interleukin-6 something that was only assumed to have been produced by activating white blood cells in the past came as a real surprise. And then you find out, as the research developed beyond that, 
as to what's it actually doing. Well, yes, it is involved to some degree in fuel mobilisation because it promotes the release of glucose from the liver. There's an additional fuel source that the muscle can use when it's running out of glycogen. It promotes fat breakdown in adipose tissue to mobilise fat, again, as an alternative fuel to the glycogen that the muscle that can use. But it's also having those other effects that interleukin-6 has. It induces an anti-inflammatory cascade. And this is the thing as to why, one of the main reasons, I think, why doing regular exercise is so beneficial to our health in so many different ways, because it opposes that fat-induced inflammation that we talked about earlier on. It's having exactly the opposite effect. It dampens down that inflammation in adipose tissue and in the rest of your tissues, takes that away to a degree. And uh, obviously you do that on a regular basis. You're, you're taking away some of that cause of all this chronic disease that you get if you just stay fat and sedentary. So it, it was an interesting finding at the time, a fascinating finding at the time, but mm. there's, there's so much come out of that that's helped us to understand why exercise is so beneficial to our health in the years that have followed. So that for me mm. is probably the most significant one, the one that stands out to me. Yeah, fantastic. Wow, when I can't you... believe that, but yeah, it's, it's really true. That's amazing. And I think when you said um, interleukin-6, that brought me straight back to sitting in my second year uh, module in sports and exercise and, and immunology module and, and reading reading the book and looking looking at all the diagrams and trying to get my head around it and, and, and feeling like it was uh, overwhelming. So it's cool to come full circle back and discuss that with you now a bit later. Um, now, look, that's fantastic. So um, yeah, re- really appreciate your time. And I think You've added so much value. Um, everything you need will be in the show notes, lovely people. So if you stayed on, uh, thanks for listening to the entire show. Uh, keep in touch with with Michael. Um, look after yourself. Stay safe, and have a healthy week. <laughs>